Now, will you please open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 2? Luke chapter 2, we'll be looking at Luke 2, verses 1 to 7. And so while you're, you're turning to uh, Luke 2, I'll ask you a little question. Rhetorical question. You can answer, I guess, but it's just for you to, to ponder. How, how are you doing today? Good? Okay, that's good. That's good. And my guess is that some of you could be like him. So yeah, I'm doing, Richard, I, I'm doing good. Richard, I, I can do Advent and Christmas all day, every day. This is the best Christmas ever. That, that's a possibility. Another one could be, Richard, can you make it stop? I, I'm tired. And uh, you know, as I shared with you guys at the beginning of the service, I, in many ways, that's kind of how I feel today. I'm looking forward to a little vacation. As soon as the benediction has been said, and I make it out of here. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to that. Then others may say, yeah, Richard, if I'm honest, this Christmas was hard. Maybe even it was really, really hard. And that could be you. That could be you for any number of reasons. Some of you, I look out and I, 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 I know in many ways why it was hard for you, for your family. Others of you have no way of knowing. But regardless of whether you answer that question, how are you doing today, at, by saying, you know, I couldn't be better, I'm dead tired, or this is hard, you know, Luke 2, verses 1 to 7 is for you. It's the word of God given to you in love for your good. And my prayer today is that by looking at this passage today, the day after Christmas, rather than the Sunday before, rather than even Christmas Eve, that looking at it today, the day after Christmas, perhaps we will listen to it with, with different ears. My prayer is that perhaps we will receive it even with, with different hearts. See, Luke 2, verses 1 to 7 is a passage uh, packed with perhaps, you know, more than, more than we think. More, more than meets the eye at an initial reading. You know, one, one commentator says this passage is a little jewel of economical storytelling, a little jewel, each of its many facets beautifully cut and showing brilliant depths. I think that's a good description. This is indeed a beautiful, true story with stunningly brilliant theological depths. And so here now, the story of Jesus' birth from Luke 2, verses 1 to 7, this is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, life-giving word. Luke 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. It's given to us in love for our good. And we're going to look at these seven verses with the following three headings, just working our way through the text. We're going to see this is a true story. It took place in the right town 
and the birth of the promised Savior. So the true story, the right town, the, the promised Savior. So first, the true story. So look back at verses 1 and 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So Caesar Augustus was Octavian, the great nephew of Julius Caesar. And our history books tell us that Caesar Augustus reigned from 31 BC to AD 14. And during his reign, the, the Romans reorganized their administration of the empire. They carried out new censuses for, for several purposes. One of them, the purpose of taxation, they wanted to count their money. But also, they also wanted to count their army. They wanted to count the number of able-bodied fighting men. So why does Luke give us these details about Caesar Augustus' census? Well, you may remember that, that Luke was a physician, a medical doctor. He paid attention to details. And also, I think it's fair to say that Luke was really a world-class historian for his day in the first century. And Luke wanted us to know, he wants us to know, that this is a true story. It has a historical setting. It really happened. It happened during the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. It's not made up. It's not make-believe. This is not once upon a time. Or you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Right, Luke, Luke wrote his gospel around A.D. 60, so within the lifetime, so this is within the lifetime of Luke's original readers. Some of them would have been able to remember the census. They would have heard about the census, known about the census, known about Caesar Augustus, known about Quirinius. So the point I'm trying to make is that we do not have the Christmas story given to us as a work of fiction to merely inspire us. You see, we need more than mere inspiration. We need more than mere sentimentality. Right? Fairy tales, legends, myths are ultimately of no value to us in the guilt, in the shame, in the disgrace, in the pain of our sin, in its impact on us, and its impact on those around us. Right? We need an actual Savior who really did live and bleed and die and rise from the dead to offer real salvation to real sinners like us who will trust in him. So that's the first thing. This is a true story that really did happen. Okay, here's the second thing. The right town. So look at verses 3 to 5 in response to the census. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So Joseph and Mary were forced to travel from Nazareth in the south, down to Bethlehem in the north, down to Bethlehem in the south, to be registered for Caesar Augustus' census because of Joseph's family lineage. Now it had to have been you know, a miserable journey for Mary and Joseph, Mary was nine months pregnant, and she had to walk around 80, 90 miles. So ladies, can you imagine that? All right, more importantly, men, can you imagine that? Can you imagine? You know, hey, sweetheart, I think we need to do this. However, 
Luke does not give us verses 3 to 5 just to make us feel sorry for Mary and Joseph having to make this journey, having to walk these 80, 90 miles. Look again at verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Do you notice whose name is mentioned twice? You know, which Old Testament character, Old Testament king mentioned twice? We've been hearing about, you know, week after week during Advent. You see, David. We've mentioned David. Each, he's listed twice here. We've mentioned him each of the last three Sundays, too. You see, here in Luke 2, we're reminded of this old promise in 2 Samuel 7 from God to King David. This old promise from 2 Samuel 7 made a thousand years before Jesus' birth in Luke 2. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 14, we read, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. It's a promise from from God to King David. So God, through Nathan the prophet, promised that the long-awaited Savior, the offspring of the woman, promised back in the Garden of Eden, back in Genesis 3.15, the one who be born of the woman, who though his heel would be wounded, he would crush the serpent's head. The one who would defeat our greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death itself would be a descendant of King David, would be a, a new and greater David, God's forever king over his people, the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior. Therefore, in Luke 2, 4, we see David's name mentioned twice. Right, pointing back to the 2 Samuel 7 promise, but Luke 2 is also echoing other prophetic promises. Promises like the ones we studied in Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11. Prophetic promises made 300 years after the 2 Samuel 7 promise and 700 years before Jesus' birth in Luke 2. Promises like Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. On the throne of David, over his kingdom, from this time forth and forevermore, this promise, this promise of, of the new David, the greater David, God's forever king, echoing, Luke 2 echoing, not just Isaiah 9, but also Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. You guys remember this right from last Sunday, that Jesse, the stump of Jesse, Jesse's David's father. And, and where was Jesse and David from? They're from Bethlehem, city of David. And so please look again back at Luke 2, verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So Joseph was a descendant of King David, so required to register his family in Bethlehem. 
the city of David, David's hometown. Therefore, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which is yet part of another old prophetic promise from the prophet Micah, also made 700 years before Jesus' birth in Luke 2. Micah 5.2 we read, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Okay, now, you think, okay, well, Richard, okay, great. You, you've given us this little mini lessons and carol service all right here in this, in this second point. But I want you to, to think about this. Wrestle with what we've learned, what we've seen here. Think about what we see about God's sovereignty, about his providence, about these big promises that he's made, promises as big as the Bible, and how he is faithful to fulfill them. And when you think about that, God's big promises, the way he's been sovereignly orchestrating things, and you read Luke 2, I mean, do you see the irony here? See, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. But do you see whose sovereign decree is actually carried out? Do you see who sovereignly placed Joseph and Mary exactly where they're supposed to be? See, Luke 2 opens with Joseph and Mary appearing to be pawns in the hand of Caesar Augustus. But do you now see that Caesar Augustus is actually the pawn in God's hand? Listen to how commentator David Gooding puts it. For Augustus, the taking of censuses was one of the ways he employed to get control over the various parts of his empire. But, and here is the irony of the thing, in the process of tightening his grip on his huge empire, he so organized things that Jesus, son of Mary, son of David, Son of God, destined to sit on the throne of Israel and of the world, was born in the city of David, his royal ancestor. Okay, so what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us this morning here in this sanctuary if if our response to how you're doing is, well, I'm, I'm excited, but if I look too far ahead, I'm anxious about various things. Or what does that mean for those of us who are in this sanctuary and we think, well, how are you doing? You say, I'm tired, I'm worn out. What does that mean for us in this sanctuary if we answer the question, how are you doing? We say, Richard, things have been really, really hard. Maybe even impossibly hard. Right? What does this mean for us? Well, it's, it's a huge reminder that God rules all things for his own glory. All things, all things. And this includes the great events of redemptive history, like the timing and the place, the the town of the birth of the long-awaited Savior. And it includes the small, ordinary, mundane, seemingly insignificant, irrelevant details of our lives. So think about that. From, From the rulings and the decrees of Caesars and presidents to the lilies of the field, and the sparrows of the air, the number of hairs on our head or that used to be on our head or, or that have now turned gray. God is sovereign and in control. 
Think about that. From these huge events of redemptive history, from the decrees and the decisions and the edicts and the rulings of Caesars and presidents to the lilies of the field, the sparrows, and the hairs on our head, sovereign over all those things, and everything in between. And think about what all lies between there. I mean, think about all of the little details that make us anxious and worried and fearful, frustrated, impatient, angry. God is ruling over all of these details, even for you. Do you believe that? So why do we let these little details consume our minds and cause our hearts to fear and to rage? I mean, how often do we live like God is not really ruling and reigning over all of these things? Ruling and reigning over our friendships and our marriages and our careers and our children and our parents over all things. See, let, let Luke 2 be a reminder that what Paul wrote in Romans 8, verse 28, really is true, even today, even for you. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. You see, this is a true story. And Jesus' birth happened in the right town, which tells us, reminds us, that we can trust our good and sovereign God. The question is, will we trust him? Will you trust him? Will I trust him? Will we trust him? You know, what do we need to trust him with? Or who do we need to trust him with? You know, why do we think God can't handle that, whatever that is? He can. The question is, will we trust him? See, if you're a follower of Jesus, then your good and sovereign God wants you to trust him with that. With that circumstance, with that thing, with that person, even that, even them, and you can. As someone once put it, as pain tells us of the need for healing, worry tells us of the need for prayer. So go to your heavenly father in prayer. Trust him with that burden that you're carrying. Trust him with that problem that you know you can't solve, that you can't handle, that you can't fix on your own. See, this is a true story. This happened in the right town. Here's the third thing. The promised Savior. So look at verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So this is the Savior long promised. It's the Savior promised to Adam and Eve in the garden. Savior promised to Abraham, to Moses, to David. The Savior promised through Isaiah and the prophets. It's Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh It became a baby. You think, well, Richard, I know that. It's Christmas. It's a Christmas story. But do you you realize, Richard Colquitt told me, don't use use the phrase mind-blowing. But this is (laughs) mind-blowing. 
Okay, I mean, this, this is stunningly mind-blowing. It's incredible. I mean, think about this. Listen to how Paul describes Jesus in Colossians 1, verses 15 to 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That Jesus took on flesh and became a baby. Or as John begins his gospel in John 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That Jesus took on flesh and became a baby. Or as you read in Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Like this Jesus took on flesh, and he became a baby. Or listen to how Philip Yancey describes this. He says, the God who came to earth came not in a raging whirlwind, nor in a devouring fire, devouring fire. Unimaginably, the maker of all things shrank down, 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 so small as to become an oval, a single fertilized egg barely visible to the naked eye, an egg that would divide and redivide until a fetus took shape, enlarging cell by cell inside a nervous teenager. The God who roared, who could order armies and empires about like pawns on the chessboard, this God emerged. As a baby who could not speak or eat solid food or control his bladder, who depended on a teenager for shelter, food, and love. God who knows no before or after, entered time and space. God who knows no boundaries, took on the shocking confines of a baby's skin. Or as Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, put it, Jesus had eyes, ears, mouth, nose, chest, stomach, hands, and feet just as you and I do. His mother nursed him as any other child is nursed. So this means Jesus, the eternal divine Son of God, entered the world humble, weak, vulnerable in his human nature. He was a baby. A baby born of the Virgin Mary. And see, this virgin birth is so important. Heard one Carlos preach on this from Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Don't you realize only the virgin birth preserves Jesus' real human nature and his completely divine nature. But his conception by the Spirit points to his deity. His birth of the woman points to his humanity. Jesus is one person, two natures, fully God, fully man. And because Jesus took on flesh by the unique and miraculous creative act of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was not corrupted by the guilt of Adam the way all of us are. So you see, friends, fallen humanity could not produce its own Savior. For to us a child was born, to us a son was given, and a son had to be given. 
by this unique and this miraculous, this creative work of God in the Virgin Mary. Jesus needed to be the God-man so he could live the sinless life we have all failed to live. And yet he needed to be the God-man so that he could shed his blood and die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. God had to give us the gift of a Savior who could accomplish our salvation for us. See, salvation is by grace and not by works from first to last. We know it has to be a gift of God that we do not earn because even the Savior had to be a gift from God to us. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given as a gift from God to the world, as a gift from God to you. But don't miss that Jesus was not only born a baby, that he was born into poverty and humiliation. So look back at Luke 2, verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. You've heard that many times. You heard that many times this week. You heard it on Christmas Eve. Many of you probably read it yesterday. But li- listen to how J.I. Packer comments on this. The story of Jesus' birth is usually prettied up when we tell it Christmas by Christmas. But it's really rather beastly and cruel. The reason why Jesus was born outside the hotel is that it was full and nobody would offer a bed to a woman in labor so that she had to have her baby in the stables and cradle him in a cattle trough. The story is told dispassionately and without comment, but no thoughtful reader can help shuddering at the picture of callousness and degradation that it draws. Right, so why is there no room for Joseph and Mary in the end? Well, it's because it was full. It was full. Every room taken. And no one cared. And Joseph and Mary didn't have the money. They didn't have the clout or the influence to get a room. They're poor. I mean, later in Luke 2, we see the, their family can only offer the, the poorest of offerings at the temple. We also know they were all alone, which is why Mary had to wrap her newborn herself, right? There's no doctor, no midwife, no family, no friends. She laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Our text tells us that Mary placed baby Jesus in a manger and not in the inn, but, but we really don't know exactly what that means. Okay, does that mean it was a stable for animals? Does that mean it was a very poor home where the animals shared the same roof as the family? Um, which if the Harris family gets any more animals, I think we're going to begin to fit this description. Um, so I think hopefully we're, hopefully we're full. Alicia, okay. <laughs> One tradition says it was a cave. Others say the open-air courtyard of the inn. Okay, but regardless of all of those options, do any of those sound like good options to you? Right, I, know, I, know, I hear you say no, and I know it's no because, you know, I, I've been here a long time. I know that, that many of us aren't even comfortable with having our babies outside of the medical center in other hospitals. See, Jesus wasn't born into a clean, sanitized freshly swept and sweet-smelling county fair-looking nativity scene. This is, this, is a, this is a hard, this is really a hard reality to think about this. See, every year we sing, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes, 
But I guarantee you, Jesus was crying. He was dirty. He was cold. Mary and Joseph were probably crying. Especially Joseph, definitely crying. These verses, they point to poverty, obscurity, even rejection. Even though Jesus is very God of very God. He came to us at the first Christmas in a state of humiliation. From the time of his birth, Jesus embraced a life of suffering, and he did it because of his love for those he came to save. And so listen to how J.C. Rowell explains this. Had Jesus come to save mankind with royal majesty, surrounded by his father's angels, it would have been an act of undeserved mercy. Had he chosen to dwell in a palace with power and great authority, we should have had reason enough to wonder. But to become poor as the very poorest of mankind and lowly as the very lowliest, this is a love that passes knowledge. It is unspeakable and unsearchable. But this is our Savior. This is your Savior. This is what your God did for you. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, for you know the grace, the grace, the the undeserved, unmerited, unearned favor, mercy, love of God. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, dear Christian, you have been richly blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus our Lord. That Jesus paid a debt he did not owe to save and to richly bless a people who owed a debt they could never ever pay. Think about this. We see this from the incarnation onward. From the moment he took on flesh and dwelt among us. Dude, Jesus' poverty started at his birth. And throughout his life, he would say foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was rejected by the innkeepers, and on the cross, he would die rejected by the world. Jesus was born all alone with his family in the manger, and on the cross, he would die abandoned by nearly all of his closest friends. Here we find baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling cloths, and one day he'd be wrapped in a burial shroud after dying on the cross as our substitute, as the atoning sacrifice to pay the full penalty for our sins. You see, this is the true promised Savior. This is the Christ of Christmas. It's the Christ we have. He's the Christ we need. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And so let me, let me end with this. J.I. Packer says, the Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity. Hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. It is the most wonderful message that the world has ever heard or will hear. And so we are right to sing year by year, come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word. This passage in particular, which tells us of this true story in the right town, and this promised, long-awaited, long-expected Jesus, born to set that people free. He is indeed the joy of every longing heart, if only we would know it. If only we would know it, if only we would believe it. We would run to him, we would trust in him. We would trust in this Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. We would trust in this Christ and his word, which is absolutely true and given to us in love for our good. We would trust in this Christ. We really would believe that he is the joy of every longing heart and that we would not allow ourselves to be taken captive, to be deceived by any of the myriad of counterfeit joys out there. Father, for many of us, most of us, this, this passage is a familiar one. But we ask you, we beg you, to impress, impress the truth of it, to write the truth of it on our hearts. Today, going forward, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.